Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 as we continue our periodic study in the epistle to the Hebrews. Let me also say that here during the 11 o'clock service, uh, parents are invited to dismiss their children ages 4 to 6 uh, for children's worship training, and the kids will be returned at noon, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, this is God's inspired and therefore infallible and an errant word. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered, since their worship, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered in accordance with the law. And then he added, behold, I've come to you to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and will write them on their minds. Then, he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these... There is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day, 
drawing near. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts and lives. Let us pray. Oh, our Father and our God, we ask that your word would now be open. May your Holy Spirit, who inspired it, now illumine it in our thinking and in our lives. Change us, we ask, into the image of Christ more and more, and we'll give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Well, who is first and who is second can sometimes make all the difference in the world. Last night, I dined to the delights of the World Cup. Nigeria won. Bosnia-Herzegovina, zero. Who was first and who was second mattered intensely to the whole planet, or at least that's the way it seemed in the moment. My sons, Reed and Arthur, are named for great-great-uncles who were fine Christian gentlemen. Reed is the second to hold his name. Arthur is the third to hold his name. And their little sister always insisted that she would be the fourth. Who comes first and who comes second can make a lot of difference. The same is true in the Bible. Our first father, Adam, plunged the race into sin and misery. And we all know what that is like. The second Adam, however, brought life to all who believe in him, all who trust in him. And so, whether you are the first or you are the second, is in this case the difference between life and death. This morning, our text in Hebrews chapter 10 is all about the first and all about the second and the relationship between them. Verse 9 reads... Jesus takes away the first in order to establish the second. But what does this mean? As we look at our passage together, I hope that we'll come away seeing this key truth. That through sacrifice, Jesus wins and we win too. Jesus wins and we win too. Now we have to begin where the text begins. We begin first with the old Mosaic sacrifices which were offered. Uh, The first four verses which we read teach us that these were animal sacrifices. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. And then that section ends, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, it's difficult for us to underestimate the number of animals that were put on the altar by the Mosaic Code. Bulls, sheep, goats, lambs, turtle doves, the whole nine lots ended up being sacrificed on the altar to God, so much so that it's almost amazing that there are any of such kind left around today. The altar had to be constructed in just the right way. Uh, The priest who was serving had to be in the right vestments and had to do things in the right order. The animals that were brought to the priest had to be of a certain kind and a certain quality. This meticulous observance of God-given instruction 
was one way that Old Testament Israel honored the Lord and served him. They followed his word in his law as he had appointed. And once the sacrifices were made, that's when the fun began. There was a big barbecue dinner on the grounds. There was meat in abundance before, because God commanded in his law that that meat be cooked rather than burned up and that the people eat a fellowship covenant meal with him as they brought the sacrifice. That means our text is about things similar to, in some ways, on some levels, like the graduates' dinner we're going to have tonight. And so that's a plug for the graduates' dinner in the middle of a sermon. How can you resist? Come and honor our graduates and enjoy a meal together. But this mosaic sacrificial system was in sharp contrast to the surrounding nations. Their gods demanded that all of the animals, every part of the animals, be burned up in the fire, and the people got nothing. That wasn't the worst of it. If you wanted a good crop, or if you lacked rain and needed some, or if you wanted good luck, then you had to bring one of your children And they would have to be rolled into the fire and burned up for the pagan gods as well. The gods got everything. The people got nothing. Oh, you didn't have to burn all your children. Just just a few selected ones as dictated by the priest. Just, Just especially the little ones you hadn't grown too attached to yet. Just roll them in the fire. Put them in the arms of the melting idol that would offer them up for you in the fire. Babies burned for economic gain. Sound familiar? But the Lord God, He was kind and generous to His people. He was not cruel and hate-filled. He loved His people. And He had a special and tender place in His heart for covenant children. He made the animals so that they would take our place in cultic rites. There were animal sacrifices dictated by the Mosaic Law. And they were also annual sacrifices. Verses 1 to 3 speak of sacrifices that are repeated and are a reminder of sins every year, according to verse 3. Over... And over and over again, mosaic sacrifices were made. The annual feasts, for example. You would need to bring a Passover lamb. At Yom Kippur, there was just the right animal that must be brought and slaughtered. And as you made one offering, and a whole series of offerings that you had made down through the years, all your life, as you obeyed God and went up to Jerusalem for the festival and sacrifice, you would be thinking about those pastimes and also longingly for the sacrifices to come. You knew as a worshiper that you'd be back there the next year bringing another lamb, having another sacrifice, enjoying another barbecue. The repetition in and of itself taught the people's hearts 
that these sacrifices they were making were incomplete in themselves. You know, last night was quite a shock for me. I, I must confess to you, I'm not really a big soccer fan. You know, I grew up in that generation when soccer was kind of sissy. And real men only played football. You know, with helmets and pads, chasing a pigskin from one end of the playing field to the other. So I had to sit there and try to understand they had these graphics going. People were waving flags and, and they were putting little, uh, uh, little animations on to help me understand who had gotten a penalty and what it meant. But, you know, in the, in the heat of the moment as the action really got hot and as, as someone was trying to get the ball in the goal and as the goalie was desperately trying to stop it, it felt in that moment like all of the World Cup and all of the world was focused in that moment and that point of time. But, you know, after it was over, some guys laughed and some guys cried. And then they put this giant chart up on the screen of all the other games that have to be played. I couldn't even really pronounce all the countries that were up there. It was, it was breathtaking. See, it looked to me as if this World Cup thing is going to go on and on. I, I don't know if it will ever be finished in our lifetime, but it, it seems they're having a good time at it. Well, the Mosaic sacrificial system was just like that. It went on and on and on. As you look down the road of the life of Israel, I could not see or apprehend the point at which it would stop. Oh, every point along the road was important. Every sacrifice had meaning. God had commanded it. And there was a lesson there to learn. But part of the lesson was in the repetition. The importance of the sacrifice did not lie in itself. It lay in something else down the road yet to come. There was something better still for the people of God. And so in that sense, all of the sacrifices, whether a big bull or a little turtle dove or anything in between, all of them, all of the animals brought all of the smoke and the fire and the sizzle, all of it was the presentation to God of an absent sacrifice. Oh, the animal was there, and the altar was there, and the priest was there, and the fire was there, and the smoke was there, but the real meaning and substance of it was frankly not there at all. You couldn't look with your eyes and see what it meant. The meaning lay outside of itself in someone else. You see, God didn't demand sacrifices because He was hungry and thirsty. He fed us with His offerings and so taught us that we have need, but He does not of food and drink. He has no body parts or passions. He doesn't need a lamb. He doesn't need bulls. He doesn't need goats. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all His. What He did want was for us to reverence His name. He wanted us to see how supremely far short of His glory we fall. 
Because you see, you and I have something in common. We're sinners. You and I break His law. You and I offend Him in thought and word and deed. And animal sacrifices were a kind of substitute for the punishment and death that we so richly deserve. Oh, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins. And so, although they substituted for us, even the little animals were not an end in themselves. They pointed forward to the second and to the final sacrifice to come. First were the sacrifices of Moses. And second was the sacrifice of Christ. His was a human sacrifice. Verse 5 says it very bluntly. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it was written of me in the scroll of the book. Here the author of the epistle to the Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 40, a psalm like the others that Jesus learned as a child and sang all the way in his life to the cross He learned with his human mind as he studied the Word, as he sang the Word. His heart learned to conform to the declared purpose and will of his heavenly Father. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, was for him a death sentence. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book, Jesus learned here that He was born to die. And this was in contrast to the surrounding pagan nations and their habit of religion. You see, Jesus was not offered as an infant as they were so quick to do. He was not even a teenager, drugged and led away against His own will like you see in Indiana Jones, and sacrificed in a great fire. He was a voluntary sacrifice. He volunteered for the job, and His heavenly Father created a body for Him. He voluntarily walked on the way to the cross. He voluntarily embraced its suffering for the joy set before Him of doing His Father's will and of saving sinners like us. And there He died. And there He spoke the truth more true than anyone ever before when He said, It is finished. And He breathed His last. His human sacrifice was a once-for-all sacrifice, completing all the others. You see, the Mosaic Code required sacrifices over and over and over again, but this one, this man's sacrifice was offered just once. 
One life for all. One life that gave meaning and purpose and intent to all the other animal sacrifices before. One life to end all sacrifices forever. His life was so precious because at the core of his being is his divine person. He's the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He comes and takes on flesh among us in this body prepared miraculously by his father for him through the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing the Virgin Mary. And he gives himself as an atonement on the tree. And he dies that we might live. Yes, it was true, as Paul said. By one man came death. But by one man came the resurrection of the dead. And so his sacrifice was also a present one. In verse 5, he, he quotes from Psalm 40 and, and he speaks of offering his body upon that tree. And then he goes on and he says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. If the animal sacrifices were absent sacrifices and the meaning was not there present in itself on the altar, on that hill of Golgotha, his sacrifice was a present sacrifice. It was full of meaning and purpose. It's not that he was like a bull or a goat that pointed to someone else. He was the creator. He was the sustainer who gave life and breath to everyone around. He was the meaning and purpose of all of their days and of all of their history and also of your history as well. And so his sacrifice was filled to overflowing with meaning and and with purpose and intent. And that means that you and I have only one choice. You must look to Jesus. You must look to Him who is the crucified, the dead and the buried. You must look to Him for your salvation. You must see Him for who He is and what He has done. There you will see your only hope and your only salvation. You know, you're a fairly nice person. You're a fairly good person. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. But you're not good enough to earn your salvation. You don't earn enough money to buy your way into heaven. You can't work hard enough. You could work until the end of time and beyond, and it would not be enough. But his value as the Son of God incarnate, has no measure. He is the one whose sacrifice can pay for all. And so He can be yours. And you can be His if you will but trust in Him and look to Him alone for your salvation. He is held out in His fullness to all of human flesh as the crucified Savior. Look to Him and be saved. 
For you see, He is the victorious one. He has been victorious for His Father. He's victorious for God. He did the will of His heavenly Father. He came and took on flesh. He he lived an obedient life. He, He never disobeyed the law of God. He marched all the way to the cross. He sacrificed Himself voluntarily there upon that tree. He did all of God's holy will. And in so doing, He protected the honor and the glory of His heavenly Father and His eternal purpose. He was then resurrected after His burial. He ascended to heaven after He taught the disciples. And there He is enthroned and He has sat down next to His heavenly Father. He is seated in the heavenlies. He does not stand on edge wondering whether He'll be acknowledged, wondering whether His sacrifice will be accepted. It has been accepted. And He is seated, resting, as His enemies are subdued on the earth. So He is victorious for God. And for us. He's victorious for all who are united to Him. He took upon Himself the judgment of God for us. He took upon Himself the curse of God for us. He took upon Himself the cup of God's wrath and He drank it to the dregs. Every drop drained out. And He did not so much consume it as it consumed Him. Oh, for us and for our salvation, He did it all. His victory is our victory. And so by His stripes we are healed. And it doesn't end there. He's the Son of His Father's love. His Father's love is set upon Him in a very special and unique way as an only begotten. And all that are His and are united to Him by faith and by the Spirit, that same love of the Father, special and unique and salvific, is upon them as well. He, if you will but bow the knee, He, if you will but turn and look and cast your cares upon Him, He will love you more than you can begin to understand. Christ is victorious. For God and for us. But our text also emphasizes that He is victorious in us. It's not just that He does things out there for you. He does those things and He does them well. But He also does things in you and to you. He changes you, believer. He gives you a new heart. He gives you a new life. New loves, new gifts, new graces. He makes you a new creature, able to serve Him in ways you were not able to do before. The author of the epistle to the Hebrews quotes in verse 16 and 17 from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the covenant I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts. I will write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. 
He changes you. He makes you love His law. He makes you understand His law. He forgives you. And having made you remember Him in His law, He blesses you by forgetting. He forgets your sin. You know those sins that you have trouble forgetting. He forgets and He forgives His own to the uttermost. That means you can be better tomorrow than you are today. Because He forgives and because He makes all things new, you can know His blessing as you come to church and and don't forsake the gathering together of the saints. As you hold on through thick and thin, hold fast that confession, that affirmation of faith, that confession of your need of Him, as He is your one and only, He will be found faithful by you in those times, never leaving you alone like the others. And so our passage teaches us that through His death, through that second sacrifice, fulfilling all the first, Jesus wins for you. And so you must face the question, do you trust Him? Let us pray.